It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, man. I'm here working in the hospital this week. Things are going all right. To be clear, you're not in the hospital. As we speak. As we speak. And you are in good health overall. Uh Above average. <laughs> Above average health, in fact. All right, good. <laughs> trending. We're trending. This is episode 204. We're going to talk about fatty liver disease shortly. But first off, we have some announcements. First, this podcast is uh, brought to you by Pioneer Belts. I like Pioneer Belts mainly because you can get them in all different sizes. That's my that's my biggest thing, right? All the things you want. Lever, single prong, double prong. And they ship worldwide, made in America. Uh, I, I don't. What's the wildest belt you've ever seen? wildest belt you mean like custom customized with like logos and stuff like yeah, that yeah i have two i have two <laughs> suggestions for this one of them i'm sure you saw uh it was a, a alligator skin belt yeah which i was like that's fashionable and this other one was explicit now look if your kids are listening to this just maybe ear muffet for a second this was i eat and then the peach emoji was embroidered on the back just putting it out there i yeah putting the vibe out <laughs> putting the vibe out uh yeah i was like huh i wonder you know like if you try to get a customized license plate and you put something you know offensive on there they go nope we're not going to do that i like, <laughs> like at some point <laughs> maybe you're like i'm not putting this out into the world well time but, to test them at pioneer yeah. see what they're willing to do for yeah it. see what matt will do yeah but uh anyways uh, if you want to support those who support us go over to generalleathercraft.com again they've got belts uh really great uh wrist wraps uh, as well and uh wrist straps um so yeah if you want to support us, uh, you can support uh, generalleathercraft.com and pioneer goods and products. Tell them that Barbell Medicine sent you. Uh, look, man, you're now now you're a teacher too. You're you're a doctor, you're a lifter, you're a teacher. What what can't you do? Doing a, I'm doing a lot of things. I started my new teaching gig this past month at the medical school nearby, and that's been pretty enjoyable working with first year and second year med students and teaching all sorts of things, getting involved in their educational curriculum and trying to make improvements and things like that. So been enjoyable so far i as i understand it your first like teaching duty was to teach students how to suture <laughs> yeah i've done four days uh, at the school uh, that that was during my time off my last block off from the hospital i went over there and yeah the first session was a suturing day which is um for those who 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 you know, don't know, I am not a surgeon. There are a few very basic, you know, situations in which I would need to, you know, do any suturing, which people you may know is like putting stitches in. But for the most part, I do not do that. And additionally, <laughs> I'm teaching trainees and residents how to do that in the hospital. And so for me myself to actually be do the, doing the suturing, it's been even longer since, I, <laughs> since I've done that because I'm usually teaching them how to do these procedures. Uh, but yeah, uh, so I basically just taught the most basic possible suturing. And I said, hey, if you want to be a surgeon one day, because this is for, uh, I forget if it, I think it was first year or second year med students, said, find somebody else. <laughs> yeah, I'm, right, not, right. I'm not your guy. <laughs> but yeah. since then, we've done more things that are kind of more up my alley with, you know, uh, differential diagnosis and clinical reasoning and talking through pathophysiology of various things and stuff like that. So nice. Yes. Congratulations. Um, we also have again, some more live in-person seminars coming up next month. I think we'll all be in Florida down in Miami for the Correct. new pain and yeah. seminar. Also be there. I should be there. It. Yeah. It should be a good time. Derek, uh, uh, Charlie, Chris is Cam, Cam coming. Man, yeah, the whole crew, yeah, it's gonna be dope. <laughs> uh, so yeah, if you want to come to that, we have tickets. To, some spots still available. That's uh, linked in the description below. Also, our other two-day health and performance seminars. Um, we'll be in 
New York in May and Atlanta in is it February? March? February? I don't know. <laughs> I just had a total my brain just stopped working. Is that like a yeah. Okay. Well, one of those months. In any case, you can check that out via the description, uh, the link in the description below. And then finally, dude, look at this new swag. Look at this. Barbell Medicine Lifting Club. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, we got hoodies. We have joggers, new t-shirts. We got new Barbell Medicine flags. Oh, like banners. I think I need whole, one of those for the garage. Yeah. Yeah, I will send I'll send you one because uh, I don't know that the my landlord would be appreciate me putting up Barbell Medicine <laughs> flags in, in my unit. But uh, yeah, those should be on the website. Probably not when this podcast goes up, but over the next few days. Uh, so look out for that. That'll if you're on our newsletter list, uh, you'll get first dibs on that. And if you're not, you'll get second dibs. And you know that might be fine. So in any case, without any further ado, let's let's dive into this week's podcast. Uh, it's about fatty liver disease and what we can do about it. Now, first off, Austin, this is probably the most medical heavy, medicine heavy topic that we've we've covered to date. And, and I. I I want you to define like what fatty liver disease is and then also like how, like, why is this important for listeners? Because I, I you know, we could do a program, another programming podcast, or just talk about like big muscles or like how to get your squat one or M up. And I think people would go wild for that. We'll do that. There are other episodes we have planned, like we're, we're going to get there, but talk about what fatty liver disease is and why it's important for people to know about it. Yeah. Um, and, and this kind of gets into why did I even suggest this as a topic for, for the podcast? The liver is a super, super important organ. It does so many things for us um, relating to metabolic functions. Uh, it can facilitate things relating to our immune function, uh, digestion. It helps to metabolize and even to detoxify certain things that we may take in that our body does not want to see or deal with. It helps us to metabolize medications, drugs, vitamins are both processed by and stored in the liver. There's probably even, you know, lots and lots and lots of other things that we don't even know that the liver does for us that we all take for granted every day. So it's a super important organ. And when it goes bad, things get pretty ugly. <laughs> Unfortunately, I see and deal with the consequences of uh, liver disease and liver failure semi-regularly, and it is not a pretty picture. And so the part of the reason why I thought this was a worthy topic is actually because of how shockingly common it is. We'll get into like how prevalent it is and, and other sorts of things later on. But I mean, there's prob there's for sure a not insignificant fraction of people listening to this right now who have fatty liver disease who do not know it. And it is something that uh, comes with a variety of potential health complications, uh, particularly over the long term, that you would rather avoid. And that will be <laughs> what we what we uh, aim to convince you of, I think, by the end of this episode. Um, so the liver is a pretty complex organ. And, and this is illustrated in a variety of ways, but the easiest one is like, if you think about um, the heart, yeah, it's complex, but we have ways to put people on cardiac bypass and we can keep them alive for a while, even if their heart's not doing its thing. Lungs, complex, we have ways to put people on lung bypass effectively and oxygenate their blood without using their lungs if we have to. Kidneys, extremely complex, but we have ways that we can replace kidney function with uh, hemodialysis. Um, we have yet to figure that out in a workable way with respect to liver disease and liver failure. Uh, not something that we can hook somebody up to a machine and just replicate all those functions. Plus the leader just got taken down. All the liver king is now no more. And so the May livers are all piece. just like, what? <laughs> yeah, what, what do? Yeah. Yeah, so, I agree. 
when I was going through when I was going through some of the epidemiology on this, I I was my my mouth like (laughs) was hitting the floor. I was like, I did not know that it was this common. And I think, you know, what as I dug into the research a little bit more, it makes sense because this is like in recently like wow, this incidence has gone up markedly. Uh, And so we'll get, we'll get to all that. But yes, if you were listening to this and you're like, you know what, not programming related, not squat related, not, not my, not my bag, baby. I I challenge you just give it another 10 or 15 minutes. I (laughs) I think this is going to be worth your, worth your time. And then also in particular, if you coach people or, or if you are a personal trainer or something like that, or um, otherwise in the fitness space, the people that you're talking to, the people that you're working with, you are going to run into this and you can use some of the information that you get here as not only leverage to get people uh, in, engaged in behavioral change, but also as just sort of like your fund of knowledge. So you know about this and it doesn't freak you out. And somebody says, oh yeah, and I have fatty liver disease, which again, almost certainly if you've got a handful of clients, one of them has probably got it. So yeah, yeah. And a significant fraction probably don't even know they have it, <laughs> which is the problem here. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's get into some liver anatomy. Take people through the little, what was the cartoon with the, the school bus? Magic school magic bus? Magic school bus. Yeah. Yeah. Magic, <laughs> yeah. Let's do the magic school bus through the liver. Sure. Yeah. So the liver is an organ that in people with uh, kind of normal uh, anatomy is going to be in the right upper side of their abdomen. Uh, unless you're, you know, there's some people who are flipped, but yeah, for the most part, right upper side of the abdomen. And it is made up of a bunch of what we call lobules. And each of those lobules contain themselves a whole bunch of different types of liver cells, which we'll just collectively call hepatocytes. Hepato is kind of the prefix for referring to uh, to liver here. Blood flow comes into the liver from places like the intestines um, to drink, you know, when you when you eat food and it gets digested, gets absorbed, um, it gets absorbed in a variety of ways. But the blood flow that's coming out of your your guts basically end up flowing collectively towards the liver. And then on the other side of the liver, it gets kind of um, it, it flows back towards the heart, which then gets oxygenated and sent out to the body. So that's kind of the the basic setup here. And in fatty liver disease, which is the giant umbrella category of diagnoses we're going to talk about here, as you can imagine, these hepatocytes, the liver cells themselves, are full of fat, full of lipid. And that um, accumulation of uh, fat within each individual liver cell um, can over time cause quite a bit of injury and damage to those cells and to the, to the organ um, over time that can lead to all the complications and consequences that we're going to be talking about. Yep. So basically fatty liver disease is, like you said, an umbrella term, but we're going to kind of hone in on a slightly more specific type, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, There are other types, which you see all the time, but this is, would you say this is the most common type that you actually see in the hospital? Um, I mean, I, yeah, I would say probably, although I see a fair amount of alcohol related liver disease as well. So those are probably the two, you know, most common that I would see as, as far as causes of liver disease. There are other situations like medicines that can contribute to it. Pregnancy can contribute to it, but those are things that I see much less often if at all. Yeah. So this is a, like I said, an umbrella term. There's this continuum of disease. Uh, how do you explain this to patients when you, if you're trying to tell somebody, Hey, you have this and this is why we should address it and and manage it. How do you explain sort of this continuum and and hone in on where they're at? Yeah. Yeah. So, so basically the, the, uh, the continuum or the spectrum of disease that we're going to talk about on on the earliest stages is what's just going to be called fatty liver or in medical speak, hepatic steatosis is the fancy word for fatty liver. Once that fat accumulation leads to inflammation and injury to the actual cells, 
then that, because it's inflammation, then it's called steatohepatitis. So that itis ending is typically what describes uh, an inflammatory situation. And so that's where things are progressed to where not just fat accumulation, but that fat accumulation is leading to inflammation and injury and damage to the organ. And as this is happening, the liver is one of the few organs that has some degree of like regenerative capability. And it will attempt to regenerate and heal and do that. But um, a fair amount of the time, that regeneration can effectively fail. It can be unsuccessful at kind of healing and regenerating the tissue, and that can lead to scarring. And so when things are scarred, the medical term is going to be fibrosis. And the worse that fibrosis is, the the, the closer to what we call end-stage liver disease, like this liver is toast and is a situation where we start to see all the complications get worse and worse and where potentially people may end up needing liver transplantation if they qualify for it or they become at extremely high risk of premature death as a result of this condition. So kind of a spectrum of fat accumulation to inflammation to scarring. And by the time it's scarring, we're going to say effectively for, for the purposes of conversation with patients that it's um, more or less permanent. And that's what we're desperately trying to avoid if we can detect this condition in an earlier stage, be it in the inflammatory stage of steatohepatitis or at the earliest stage of just plain old fatty liver. Yeah. And we're making the distinction between, again, this non-alcoholic fatty liver disease sort of spectrum versus alcoholic, uh, alcohol-related fatty liver disease. And so where that we draw the line, not we, but the medical community draws the line is that there's been an absence of excessive alcohol consumption, which is about 20 to 20 or 30 grams of ethanol per day for women and men respectively, or in standard drink terms, uh, greater than 21 standard drinks per week in men or greater than uh, 14 standard drinks in uh, women per week. A standard drink is 12 ounces of beer with about 5% alcohol by volume, five ounces of wine, or one and a half ounces of a 80 proof spirit. Uh, and that's got to be within the two year period preceding the sort of baseline liver uh, evaluation. We would call it histology in medical terms, which basically means we took a biopsy, looked at the cells under a microscope and said, oh, wow, there's a bunch of fat in these cells. So effectively within the two years prior to being evaluated, you have not been drinking, or the, per the patient has not been drinking a significant amount uh, in excess of what we just described there. Yeah. I, although the caveat I'll say is that it's rarely a binary where the person's having either zero sure, alcohol yeah. or an amount in excess of those relatively high <laughs> uh, weekly intakes. Thinking. 21 drinks a week is a lot. <laughs> there, there it is. Uh, and so, um, and, and so typically there's some amount of alcohol intake. So, so this diagnosis can be to some extent fuzzy, but it's also, you know, reasonable for us to say they have components of both the, the quote unquote non-alcoholic component that can come with all the metabolic risk factors that will get to obesity, diabetes, insulin resistance, things like that. And probably the alcohol is not helping the situation either. They can have, you know, multiple sources of injury uh, to the liver. So Okay. So just as far as some background information, though, it, would you say that uh, the definition of all the terms that we just kind of went over, is that set in stone? Is that pretty well accepted? Are people debating this in the literature? Like what's, what's going on there? Yeah, I think that those definitions are more or less, you know, uh, accepted and standard. There is some discussion around the actual what terms we should use to describe this. So the term alcoholic in general is falling out of favor in medicine. So, you know, to describe a person, we definitely don't do that anymore, or we shouldn't. We tend to say a, a person with alcohol use disorder. And similarly, non-alcoholic or alcoholic uh, fatty liver disease or alcoholic hepatitis and things like that are now being re-termed whether like alcohol-associated 
you know, liver disease, alcohol-related uh, uh, hepatitis, something like that. Um, and then this non-alcoholic variety that we're talking about, um, some have proposed a term metabolic associated liver disease or metabolic dysfunction associated liver disease. Um, but that's not yet like fully accepted. That was just proposed, I think, formally like two years ago or something like that, which I think I would be in favor of a, of a term like that, given, um, you know, the, the general condition and its associations and things like that. And it gets rid of that, uh, you know, term that is falling out of favor of alcoholic as a, as a pretty pejorative label for, for some folks. Right. Yeah. You just want to use that and, and make it worse as far as stigmatization, access to care, things of that nature. Uh, okay, definitions aside, how common is this thing? And, and again, this is where my jaw hit the floor, but I'll let you take the stage. Like, How common is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Shockingly prevalent. Uh, 25% of adults worldwide. So wow, this will be like one of those one of those hustler memes where it's like, let that sink in. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> A quarter of people in the world have this. And just which to is profound. Just to contextualize that, like if we use the cutoff for high blood pressure or hypertension at 140 millimeters of mercury systolic, that's the top number, about 30% of people worldwide have hypertension. If you lower that number to like 120, like the latest AHA guidelines, if you do that worldwide, it'd be close to one in every two, close to yeah. half of the population. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is very common. So if you have a you know, client panel of 20 clients that you're working with, 30 clients, almost certainly. And they're all gen and they're all gen pop kind of yeah. folks. Yeah. In, right. Yeah. Not just young, you know, power lifters or whatever, like, <laughs> uh, at least one of them is going to, going to have this and they probably don't even know it. Correct. Yeah. They probably. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that's just not, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in general, about 25% of adults globally and it's been a rapid increase over the last 40 years or so uh does this happen in kids for sure yeah uh this is also concerning <laughs> about seven and a half percent or so of children um, are estimated to have this which as you can imagine has also been on the increase with with uh with pediatric obesity and if you select in particular from populations of like pediatric obesity clinics um, then a third of patients in those clinics are going to have uh, fatty liver disease, which is uh, obviously you're selecting among that population, um, which is going to have a high proportion of this, but obviously that's, that's quite concerning. Um, and so this has pretty quickly, you know, become an extremely common cause of chronic liver disease, because this is a long-term condition that is often progressive in nature over the lifespan. And it is the most rapidly increasing cause of liver related death uh, worldwide as well. Despite all of that, despite, again, a quarter of people in the world, one in four, essentially having this, it remains really underappreciated. Uh, I know that there's a fair number of people in the audience listening who maybe have not heard of this or not super familiar with this, clinicians who may not, you know, they may know that this exists, but they may not be super comfortable with like the approach to it or diagnosis or whatever the case is. And so it is both underappreciated, underrecognized, underdiagnosed. Um, and the problem is that patients can go undiagnosed for decades. And when this condition, which is chronic and it can be progressive, um, then you can go through all of those stages where you have the fat accumulation, stage one, the inflammation, the next stage, and then you can get to the permanent scarring at the end stage. And that's where, you know, you're kind of too late to do anything about it at that point, other than try not to let it get worse, manage complications as best you can, consider a transplant if you need it. Um, and so this, you know, e even in the past, 10, 15 years, like, you know, I remember when we were going through school, um, that was around the time when like the new hepatitis C medications were just starting to, you know, become more available, even though they were extremely expensive. 
And so, you know, even going through residency, I saw massive amounts of cirrhosis, you know, this permanent liver scarring due to hepatitis C uh, um, all the time. And I see quite a bit less of it now. I see quite a bit less active hepatitis C and things like that now that we are much more able to treat and cure that condition altogether. Um, And so as a result, uh, fatty liver disease is expected to, you know, uh, take over completely as far as like the most common reason for needing liver transplants, which then is going to become complicated because what if you're trying to transplant, you, you know, you, somebody needs a transplant, but all the transplanted, uh, the, the, the options of livers that you have to transplant into somebody are themselves fatty <laughs> because of how prevalent it is. That's going to be a complicated problem. So it's a, it's a big deal. Why, why do we think this is so underdiagnosed? I, I mean, I, what I'm thinking of is like the person who's otherwise well, yeah. has no major medical complaints, you know, is not really being followed up for any sort of chronic disease or whatever. And they've kind of developed this, uh, you know, under the hood, so to speak. And, and so is it like the first thing you see are some abnormal liver function tests or, or is it more common that they get diagnosed because they've had some imaging done yeah. uh, of the abdomen and they're like, Hey, uh, by the way, this, yeah. this, this thing. Yeah, that we'll, we'll get into a little bit of the, the diagnosis stuff later, but part of the problem is yes, it is for the most part, not going to have symptoms. Uh, and so people are not going to come in complaining of anything. Additionally, there is not good evidence at this point to support screening for this, broadly speaking. And people who have listened to our prior episodes relating to screening and medical testing will understand, you know, the, the complexities of that. So we don't have any guidelines on that. And, and to be clear, we're not going to necessarily recommend that either, broadly speaking, because we don't have evidence to say that everybody in the world should be screened for this at this point. Um, and then finally, um, yes, the 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 liver the blood liver enzymes is a common place that people look for these but part of the problem there is that about half of patients with fatty liver disease can have normal liver enzymes and so the 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 changes can be pretty subtle um you might have very mild elevations in liver enzymes in one person and and you know none at all in another person and pretty high in another person and then other blood test related changes again can be pretty subtle we'll talk about like the platelet count is something that tends to go down as liver disease develops but it can take a while before it gets low enough to catch somebody's attention it's very easy for us when we look at a platelet count that's technically in the low end of normal to say eh you know, brush it off, whatever the case is, but it can be a manifestation of this kind of a thing. And so there are like scores that compile all these different variables together to try to give you a sense of like, how likely is it this person has scarring fibrosis in the liver? Cause that would be problematic and you'd want to figure that out, but no symptoms, no screening guidelines, really subtle, sometimes no blood test abnormalities. And you may just by accident find it on an imaging test. If you get a CT scan for some other reason or an ultrasound for some other reason. Um, so that's probably a big part of why it's, it's quite underdiagnosed. Yeah. And if you've, if you've listened to our other podcasts re- regarding blood tests uh, and that intersection between resistance training or exercise and what that affects on a blood test, that was uh, abnormal labs, part one and part two, you know that resistance training or uh, intense uh, aerobic activity can raise you, these markers of liver function, the AST and ALT values for up to a week after exercise. And so if you had a blood test that you had elevated LFTs, for example, you know, and you just exercise right beforehand, it, again, you may not catch this, so to speak. Uh, and again, because you're not really having symptoms pertaining to it either. So yeah, we'll definitely get into more diagnosis stuff. I just thought, man, when I saw the incidents of this, yeah. I was like, <laughs> uh, what? Pretty wild. Okay. Yeah. So, so, and I think this will kind of work nicely into maybe who does, 
would warrant screening or maybe further workup. Like we talk about who is at risk for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And we, you kind of hinted at this earlier on saying, you know, there's a lot of sort of metabolic inputs here that kind of drive this whole process. So who, who is at the biggest risk for developing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Uh, so a pretty high proportion of people who have either diabetes or obesity or both are, are going to be at risk. Um, it's estimated somewhere upwards of maybe 60, 65% of people with diabetes may have fatty liver disease. And then upwards of 80, 80% of people with obesity can have fatty liver disease, even if they don't yet have uh, diabetes or they don't have diabetes at all, it's still possible. Um, there are some people who have a normal BMI uh, who can still and, and would therefore not be officially classified as having obesity in the absence of waist circumference measurements who can still develop fatty liver disease. Um, but typically, these are people who um, they have a fair amount of central obesity. They may be the so-called supposed like skinny fat kind of phenotype where they don't have a ton of body mass overall. Their BMI can be in the normal range, and yet they have most of their body fat deposited in and around their, their abdomen. And so that can obviously also extend to the liver. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem with BMI in and of itself. Because People listen to this are like BMI is BS because all it's doing is it's basically calling people that are too jacked uh, obese. They're like, well, look, if my BMI is over 30, but I'm super jacked, I'm good. It's like, mm, not not necessarily. The real problem with BMI is that it's missing folks who have a normal BMI who are also carrying too much body fat. Uh, and it misses about half of them, which is why we want to get a waist circumference too. So even though it's called lean non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, in general, when you look at those individuals, the not waist shredded. circumference. <laughs> not shredded. Yeah. And just as an aside on the elevated BMI thing, if people are like, oh yeah, I got a BMI over 30, which technically classifies me as uh, being an individual with obesity, but I work out all the time. I got a lot of lean body mass. I'm protected, right? That's like cardi protecting me from all these cardiometabolic disease processes. The evidence does not seem to suggest that. And it doesn't mean that having additional muscle mass is not protective. It's just not as protective as the excess adipose tissue is harmful. It's like you're, you're being outweighed there by having the excess body fat. Uh, in any case, okay, so these are the people who are at risk for it. But like how long does this take to manifest? Like is this like a, once you get it you're, within a year, you're like you're, you're – you know, finding out that you have this or is it? Yeah, probably not. Um, as, yeah. As I said, this is a long-term condition. Um, and to be clear, you know, while a quarter of the world has fatty liver disease, only a, a smaller fraction of that population um, will develop the inflammation, the steatohepatitis, and then a smaller fraction of that small fraction will develop the scarring, the cirrhosis. And then a small fraction of that fraction will develop all the complications of cirrhosis, like liver cancer and things like that. And so this can take decades to progress and manifest. Um, and so most people who have it will not actually develop those end stages, the cirrhosis, or die from a liver-related cause, which you can say, okay, great news. Even if I have this, I'm probably not going to suffer all the complications of this um, because of how slow it is and how those because of how fractions work, basically. <laughs> but <laughs> right, yeah. because the, the problem here is that because of just how prevalent it is, because of the sheer number of people who have this condition, small fractions of really big numbers still end up being a big problem. And that, so that's why it's effectively is going to be, if it isn't already, the leading cause of that condition of cirrhosis and, and liver and uh, primary liver cancer. Um, so, so while if you have it, you are not super likely to have all those complications, uh, I wouldn't take my chances <laughs> being, the, sure. being the short answer. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So outside of diabetes and carrying too much body fat, are there any other risk factors that really seem to play a strong role in developing this? 
Yeah, there's some there's some interesting stuff here. As with almost every other condition that exists, there's some genetic and epigenetic, meaning how your genes and your gene expression are, are regulated, some, some genetic contributions to that, although that's not like a slam dunk um, as far as like you're definitely going to get it or you're definitely not. Um, there are some very rare mutations people can get that can absolutely cause this on its own, but those are not what we're talking about here. So there's some genetic familial predisposition. Interestingly, shi uh, like shift work seems to be a risk factor for this. And this may relate to some of the stuff we've talked about before around, you know, be it chrononutrition, chronobiology, um, how shift work impacts sleep, how that impacts, you know, metabolic function, insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance, appetite, satiety, weight gain, et cetera, all those sorts of things. Um, so so uh, appears to be a higher proportion in, in shift workers for, for any one or multiple of those reasons that, that we described. Um, there's And then there's a bunch of other kind of toxins that can uh, harm the liver, be it from the environment or alcohol itself or certain kinds of infections. Like I mentioned, hepatitis C is an infection, autoimmune conditions that can attack the liver. And so these are separate from non-alcoholic fatty liver. But the problem is that people can have multiple things, right? So people might have not the most severe case of obesity or diabetes, but if they have any element of that and they have some of these other things, then they're going to be at higher risk for re liver-related complications. So having metabolic syndrome, having you know obesity and, 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 and fat depositing in your liver for those reasons and drinking alcohol is worse than just having one of, one of those things alone as an example. Sure. It looks like, though, to the, our benefit, some protective factors seem to be coffee and exercise. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now when, when you looked at the data on coffee, um, we're, is it similar to our episode that we did on caffeine and coffee where we're like, all right, maybe it's like some of the compounds in coffee itself, the flavonoids, et cetera, versus the caffeine, or is it, yeah. you know, something more. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I, I view it as coffee as a quote unquote food as a, as a beverage, uh, itself. Um, all the protective things that come with it, not like you're going to pop a caffeine pill or you're going to get caffeine from a monster and it's going <laughs> to, it's going to do the same thing that may actually be worse. Um, so, so coffee is something that you will, if you happen to visit a hepatology clinic for any reason for, for this kind of a thing, then, uh, it is probably something that you are going to get, uh, recommended to consume. Um, if it's, you know, reasonable and you don't have any other reasons to avoid it, which are uh, very, very few. Um, although to just to be clear that this is, you know, black coffee or, or, or minimum minim coffee with minimal additives, you don't want to have somebody with obesity and diabetes having a, you know, 600 calorie, you know, uh, uh, bomb <laughs> from, yeah. from Starbucks or whatever the case is. Right. And the exercise thing is probably, I mean, the way I understand it is probably more related to its effects on metabolism overall, like, and just metabolic health, if that we're going to use that term, which I don't love because it's nonspecific and whatever, but, um, you know, as far as maintaining insulin sensitivity and maintaining, uh, glucose disposal, maintaining fatty acid oxidation and, you know, energy use just in general, in addition to maintenance and growth of what I like to call it, like it's huge metabolic sink, which is your musculoskeletal system. And so there's all these, you know, both indirect and direct benefits of exercise. And yeah, so it's no surprise to me that exercise is protective. It's just like not one single mechanism. Like it does this one weird trick. It does all these weird tricks. Uh, but yeah, so what, okay, let's say somebody gets non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Did they, is that the cause of death generally, or is it something more insidious, more, uh, underlying, uh, that, that happens? Yeah, so even though fatty liver disease is rapidly rising as a cause of liver-related death, where people might have premature death from the complications of this condition, uh, be it you know scarring, liver fibrosis, cirrhosis, or, or complications thereof, to include primary liver cancer, 
that is not the most common cause of death in people who have fatty liver disease. Hopefully that, uh, uh, that sounds like a paradox, I guess, potentially, but, uh, but hopefully that makes sense that the most common reason patients who have this tend to have premature death is cardiovascular disease, which we've talked about at length in other podcasts as the most common cause of death worldwide, um, in the U S everywhere you go pretty, pretty much. Um, and so it, also is the most common cause of death in people who have fatty liver disease. It's just that among people who have fatty liver disease, they're also at higher risk of liver-related death uh, from, from those kind of complications. So the, the, the top cause would be cardiovascular disease, which includes all the risk factors we've talked about before, obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol issues, things like that, um, uh, smoking, et cetera. And then additionally, they're also at risk of uh, not just liver cancer, but cancers outside of the liver as well. And, and so these include things like colorectal cancer, uterine cancer, of various other kinds of, uh, of uh, malignant cancers. Yeah. The way, the way I think about the liver disease and its effect on like cardiovascular disease and that trajectory is like, it, it's almost like an accelerant. Like if the liver is not working how it should, yeah, so your your cholesterol levels and the lipoproteins that carry them around are going to be all out of whack. Your insulin sensitivity is, again, already all out of whack. So you have insulin resistance. And so that means that blood sugar on average is going to be a little bit higher. You're not so good at disposing of that. And that in and of itself can cause damage to the vasculature and its microarchitecture causing issues with blood flow. So now you have a insulin resistance problem, metabolic problem. You've got uh, blood flow, blood circulation problem. And oh, by the way, you've got all these, you know, cholesterol abnormalities. And it's like, uh, yeah, so those were like the three biggest, you know, causes towards cardiovascular disease. And, and since this is so common in individuals with uh, obesity, you're like, yeah, you're, that makes sense. You're kind of set up for premature death from cardiovascular disease. Uh, and it being so common, I'm like, Wow, we should do something about this. Yeah, yeah. Hence the podcast. Hence the podcast. Point, I suppose here, here we're going to save are. the world with this episode, <laughs> raising awareness. All right, let's back up for a second, though. Um, we never really got into the pathophysiology, like why this occurs, what happens, um, and I know that some of this is controversial or at least still up for debate. But the two-hit hypothesis is kind of what we learned, uh, and I, that it's the most recent stuff I, I could find uh, as far as explaining it uh, in a sort of cogent and, and, and succinct manner. Uh, is this how you think about it, that this two-hit hypothesis where the first hit is like you get some fatty accumulation, second hit is like because of that, all these other bad things happen? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, I think that in, you know, although although the whole idea of like a calorie in, calorie out sort of description as it relates to diabetes, uh, to obesity in general is commonly viewed as a, as a oversimplification, um, it, it, which it certainly is as far as like the human experience of, of how de uh, obesity develops, it is the bottom line energy balance is, you know, the, the, the determinant of body mass at any given time. There's just a ton of variables on both sides of that equation. Uh, fatty liver disease is kind of like a micro version of that. It's energy into the the liver versus energy out of the liver. And so in this condition, the fat accumulation in the liver um, gets gets going when there is overnutrition, basically energy overload to the liver more than it can feasibly export. Um, and when I say export, I mean like package it into, you know, things like VLDL and other lipoproteins and spit them out into the blood. And then the blood can, you know, um, can deliver it to organs where it can get burned for energy, be it triglycerides and, and, and other fats and things like that. And so once there's more energy into the liver than can be feasibly exported. Um, that is the, the way that this um, fat accumulation, this steatosis begins. Uh, and you get this phenomenon of insulin resistance where insulin is not really able to do its job as efficiently of getting glucose, getting blood sugar out of the blood and into cells and tissues. So blood sugar levels go up. Um, 
you know, relating to liver problems and problems with the muscle as well, which is also not doing as great of a job at taking up blood sugar and fats and things like that. And so as this accumulates more and more and more in the liver, you lead, this leads to more inflammation, this, you know, various free radical reactions and oxidative stress and complicated biology that that's probably beyond the scope of, of what we necessarily need to get into in this, in this uh, uh, podcast. But that inflammation that develops in the liver itself uh, starts to damage things and damage to those uh, cells and tissues leads to those sometimes successful, sometimes unsuccessful attempts at regeneration, uh, which can then lead to scarring, fibrosis, uh, what we call end-stage liver disease, cirrhosis. And then, you know, when, when you have all sorts of damage, like to include damage to DNA and things like that, that's when cancers develop. So that's where like, a, you know, a liver cancer can, can emerge from that process. Yeah. Basically you, you get, a, you get too much fat in the cells of the liver. The cells do not function as they should. Uh, and invariably there's some unwanted cellular turnover. And if that happens up at a rapid enough rate, yeah, you in increase risk of developing a neoplasm or, you know, some sort of tumor. Yeah, exactly. Yep, exactly. So, uh, definitely, uh, interesting pathophysiologies as far as like why this happens, the mechanism uh, lovers in our audience are like, Ooh, yeah, tell me more. Uh, I want to tell you less because I want to get into like diagnosis and management because it, we're going to keep learning more about why this happens and the various mechanisms and signaling molecules and other, other sort of stuff. But as far as like identifying it and what do, I don't know that those mechanisms are going to really like change the landscape of, of what we're doing because, uh, it, it's more just going to be like an interesting, like fun fact, like, Oh, did you know that this one signaling molecule or, you know, cytokine is heavily involved? It's like, I did not know that, but you know, I don't know that that's a target for a pharmaceutical or for a particular intervention. So, uh, let's, let's move towards diagnosis. So again, this kind of goes back to an earlier discussion. Like are most people getting diagnosed via this, what, what might be referred to as like an incidental finding on like imaging of the abdomen for some other reason or, or what's going on there? Yeah. So, so you mentioned one way that it can be diagnosed earlier uh, in the podcast when you talked about a liver biopsy and that's where people will stick a needle through the abdominal wall and take a bite out of the person's liver and put that under a microscope and look at it. And historically that's been considered like the best way to prove this, like the quote unquote gold standard. There are some issues with, uh, you know, since, you know, uh, humans are, who are looking through that microscope, and humans tend to be notoriously unreliable. <laughs> there is some variability, uh, you know, some some what we call interrater variability between pathologists, and even the same pathologist may have different interpretations at different times. And additionally, you, you there's there's uh, issues of risk, right? S stabbing somebody and taking a bite out of their liver can come with complications. Bleeding related being one primary concern because a lot of blood flow goes through the liver. Um, cost. Uh, of that whole process, right? The procedure, the equipment, the supplies, the pathologist report, their interpretation, et cetera, et cetera. And sampling bias also, like what if you take a bite out of an area of liver that is not as affected as another area that's more affected? Um, it, you're only getting the area that you take a sample out of. And so if there's, if it's not homogeneous involvement, like the whole organ isn't exactly the same, then you might miss an area that looks worse or that looks better than, than other areas. So there, so there's, Basically, the point is to say that biopsy is a, a very good way at diagnosing this, but there are enough issues and uh, risks and not enough 
people literally to do this procedure for a quarter of the world's population, be it hepatologists and, and, and uh, you know, be it radiologists and pathologists to interpret all these things, that biopsy as that quote unquote gold standard is not really feasible as a, you know, global strategy to diagnose everybody, to just go can stabbing you, everybody for this. <laughs> can you imagine if this was like a home health test? Like you get like a, a long needle. A kid to stab yourself with. <laughs> yeah. Ex- well, because you're just trying to figure out which, how your liver health is. Yes, there you go. <laughs> like maybe more, maybe more accurate than like a you know a pinprick of your finger yeah. and a blood test or whatever, but some additional complications. Uh, yeah, yes. So, so, so biopsy not being the the super accessible uh, way to do this, and not preferable because most people don't want to get stabbed to to figure that out. Um, as you mentioned, it's also possible to diagnose this via imaging modalities that could be like ultrasound or MRI. Um, there are some fancy ways, uh, fancy types of ultrasounds that can be used to assess like how stiff is the liver. And that can be, that's basically correlated to that scarring and fibrosis. So there's something called a fibro scan, which itself looks at liver stiffness. Um, and then even uh, shy of that, um, there are um, other sorts of metrics that we can look at on people's blood tests that are not perfect to diagnose this, but they can be helpful to get us closer to the likelihood that somebody has significant fatty liver disease, that they may have fibrosis or scarring. And so the details of these tests are things that really would only need to be known by a clinician, but just for some of the clinicians in the audience, something called a FIB4, FIB-4 index. It's really just four variables, age, AST, ALT, and the platelet count. And again, as age goes up, this risk will go up as both the liver and associated enzymes, AST and ALT go up. And as platelet count goes down, then that risk of fibrosis increases. And so the higher the FIB4 index is, the more concerned you would be. And then the more likely you would be to say, hey, why don't we do an ultrasound? Why don't we do a fibro scan? Why don't we consider if it's appropriate for the person, a, a biopsy, which would not come before imaging, but would also be in the in the equation as well. So there are some some blood tests, particularly liver-related tests and platelet counts and things like that, that can be helpful. If all of those are flawless, then you can say it's pretty likely that this person does not have advanced scarring, at least. It's still not perfect to tell you whether they have any degree of fatty liver, but it can tell you they don't have like advanced problems. Um, whereas in more advanced cases, then you're going to see more problems with those with those blood test numbers. So, so having a low score on that kind of an index tells you at least this person is at low risk of liver-related complications. They're not in that small fraction of a fraction of the quarter of the world who have, you know, scarring, fibrosis, cirrhosis, who are going to get liver cancer, who, who may get liver cancer or other cirrhosis-related complications. Yeah. It was interesting. When I was looking at like the, the FIB4 index, like how it was created. Mm-hmm. I, oh man, big data coming, <laughs> coming out of the woodwork. Yeah, yeah. Effectively it's this large meta regression and they're like, yeah, if you take these, you know, values and you combine them all, that gives you this prognostic score that does indeed seem to hold up. And I will be so curious to see what happens over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Is there going to be a FIB8? Is it going to be a FIB2? Is it going to be some other How thing? much more refined can it get? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very, very, very cool. Uh, so we talked earlier about how like we're not going to necessarily recommend that everybody gets screened. But as I was reading, I see that you kind of came to the same uh, conclusion or at least the same sort of takeaway that there are the the many national international um, health and guideline providing organizations are kind of like, look, if you have a patient that's at high risk because they have type 2 diabetes, plus or minus uh, obesity, plus or minus some, you know, abnormality, like they should be screened. 
and and you know you can do this with if they've got blood test values in in the in, in recent history um is that how which, you're, which you're, yeah and and a lot of those blood tests will have been obtained anyway at some point along the line they're not even like a special test that somebody would need to get for this in particular so yeah screening broadly like the whole population we don't have any reason you know, uh, as good evidence to say that's a super cost-effective thing. And and this is for multiple reasons. One is that if you just happen to find regular old fatty liver, that like one and a quarter of the population, for the most part, um, a lot of the recommendations for what we would recommend those folks do are going to be the same, uh, whether they are diagnosed with fatty liver disease uh, that first stage or not. And we'll, and we'll get to what those recommendations are. Um, but it is definitely true that if you had more advanced fatty liver disease, it becomes more and more important to know that um, because you do start to eventually do things differently. Um, for example, somebody does have that, you know, advanced scarring, that fibrosis, that cirrhosis picture. Well, there are certain immunizations that they should probably get. They should probably be getting, you know, semi-regular, you know, screens for liver cancer and things like that. There are things that change once you get those more advanced kind of conditions. And maybe somebody, you know, might meet criteria to start getting evaluated for a transplant or, or whatever the case is. Or it may be that, hey, we ex it becomes extra important that we, you know, reduce or eliminate alcohol use in that sort of a situation, things like that. So so there are things that become more and more important to do the, the, the more advanced the condition is, whereas very early on, given that it's super common, but the majority of people aren't going to get to those advanced stages, we don't have great evidence to say everybody should be screened. With that said, again, these tests, the, 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 that index that we mentioned, it has four variables that like most people who have seen a doctor have probably gotten evaluated at some point, un, you know, not intentionally. And then you just take those four values and plug them into the calculator and it can spit out the likelihood of at least, you know, moderate to more advanced fibrosis, which is worth knowing. Yeah. I think it's kind of like, you know, like if you wanted to calculate somebody's 10 year risk of cardiovascular disease, you, there are numbers that you have already. Yeah. In the chart. They're already in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. And so you just calculate it. And so I can imagine that uh, trainees, you know, as they're going through their residency or whatever, they're, you know, the attending physicians like, oh, did you calculate a FIB4 on this person? They have central adiposity. They have, you know, risk of a history of prediabetes. Like, did you calculate the score? Yeah. And they're like, oh, no. I bet, but, I bet most are not asking that unless they're in a hepatology clinic, but they should be because most of these be. patients are in primary care clinics. <laughs> exactly. I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. The only other, the only thing I could, I would add to that is that, you know, even if somebody wasn't necessarily a high risk of progression or they, it was like an early kind of catch, so to speak, and you weren't really going to do anything differently, this, you definitely could use this as sort of like a behavior change, like lever or motivational sort of factor to like, Hey, this thing is kind of out there. Uh, we want you to do these lifestyle changes anyway, but this may might add a little more kind of fuel to the fire, or a little more uh, chutzpah, you know, behind somebody's efforts to to get them to to change uh, behaviors. So, yeah, so that's that's screening, diagnosis, and uh, now we get to the fun part. We talk about management. So, like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, like what do? Um, so. Obviously, when you see people in the hospital, it's different than if you were in a primary care clinic or, you know, obviously managing somebody outpatient. When they're in the hospital, if they're there for liver, uh, some sort of liver related issue, your job is like, let's stabilize them. Let's like get them back to some sort of, you know, functional capacity where they can, you know, get outside the hospital and otherwise manage this. What are your goals of care in that sort of acute setting for them? Like what's, what's the usual thing you see and like what... What's, what is your sort of like immediate goals of care? Yeah. So, so if I'm admitting somebody to the hospital for a liver related reason, it's most often a complication of that advanced fibrosis, scarring, cirrhosis type of situation. Uh, and there are a variety of complications that can happen. Infections are extremely common. Um, 
Uh, bleeding is extremely common, like throwing up blood, having blood in the stool, things like that, quite common. Kidney failure, very common. Um, and there are a few other, you know, uh, bouts of confusion and, and, and other things that can happen um, in people whose livers are not working too well. And so, yeah, in those situations, I am having having the 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 a lot of the lifestyle conversation around weight loss and things like that is not super feasible um, uh, or likely to work when people have much more glaring issues in front of them in the extremely short term. However, what I the, the conversation I do have with those folks is relates to alcohol use because I see that as a major problem that needs to be addressed early and often in these in these uh, in these patients, and so I'm definitely hammering on the alcohol piece um, to to try to mitigate that whether it's through regular old motivational interviewing, behavior change counseling, things like that, and also often uh, offering medications that that are demonstrated to reduce the risk of you know severe alcohol use disorder relapses things like that. There there are treatments for that that are obviously outside the scope of what we're talking about today, but those are, those are my primary goals in the inpatient setting when I'm seeing people in the hospital, because they're usually there, they're quite sick and usually their, their livers are pretty advanced in this process. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, in contrast, you know, if people who have uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, uh, whether they know it or not, um, and are not sort of in that acute setting where like, Hey, we've, we've really got to stabilize and get you back on track. So you have, you know, have a, a fighting chance at turning this around. Uh, in the long term, yeah, the, the lifestyle stuff is very similar to what we see for pretty much every other um, sort of medical condition we've talked about on this podcast. Uh, but the specifics here is we're trying to reduce drivers of that fatty accumulation within the liver. We're trying to reduce the risk of progression to fibrosis. We're trying to reduce uh, inflammation as well as one of the drivers of that fibrosis where that could progress the liver to full on cirrhosis and uh, also control the uh, risk factors for other diseases, most notably cardiovascular disease, because again, that's the most common cause of death in individuals with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So let's start off here with nutrition, some nutrition changes. Uh, first one's going to be weight loss. Uh, it, pretty much every clinical practice guideline, bulletin, you know, whatever there, the recommendations for weight loss are there, um, with a goal weight loss of at least 5% but preferably greater than 10% of body weight lost uh, as there seems to be this dose dependent relationship between amount of weight loss and like greater benefits in the, what the biopsy looked like under the microscope. So less fatty acid infiltration, less inflammation, less fibrosis, all sorts of stuff. Um, as you may have guessed, if you've been listening to the Barbell Medicine podcast for any period of time, it does not really matter what type of diet that you follow as far as like, oh, is it the, you know, food, uh, my plate from like the, you know, 2020, to 2025 dietary guidelines for Americans. Is it, you know, Mediterranean diet? Is it a low carb diet? Is it whatever? It doesn't really matter. Uh, basically weight loss is controlled by energy balance. And so you need to be in a calorie deficit and, you know, the weight, weight loss is going to occur if you can successfully achieve that. Um, that said, when you actually look at the guidelines from, um, each, of these, uh, uh, national, international sort of, uh, uh, health organizations, they all specifically recommend the Mediterranean diet. And, and I don't know if that's just more of like a thing that, because they've studied it directly in this condition more frequently, it seems to be like every doctor's favorite diet is the Mediterranean diet, but I, I was unable to find any, like we took the Mediterranean diet and compared it to the, you know, my plate or like the dash diet or whatever, and saw superior outcomes. I just think it's another dietary pattern that meets all of the criteria that we would otherwise promote for a dietary pattern that's likely to be healthy. And so 
just one of many different options. Uh, is that the way you see it? Or do you think there's something intrinsically beneficial about the Mediterranean diet? Yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree with much of what you said. I'm not aware of like studies where they compare two different diets that generate equivalent weight loss, and then one has much better impacts than the other despite the same amount of weight loss. There are certain features of the diet itself that are relevant here, um, which it, you know it looks like you you uh, you had prepared to to comment on. Do you want to comment on those? <laughs> well, yeah. I, I mean, the thing, the thing with the Mediterranean diet in particular is that the, the overall sort of uh, dietary pattern is very uh, satiating in that it, it provides a bunch of most of the foods that would be accepted on a Mediterranean diet are filling. They are uh, tend to be uh, low in processing uh, and they t that would tend to spontaneously result in an energy balance that would not support excess energy stores or excess body fat. So that's a fancy way of saying like, if you follow the Mediterranean diet, it is very unlikely that you'll be able to overeat by consuming the Mediterranean diet. Could you theoretically follow an ultra processed food diet if you were like living under lock and key and somebody was giving you, you know, a set amount of energy and it was all ultra processed foods? Sure. It would just be very difficult to do that in the free living world. Um, the one feature of the diet that is probably important to mention is the saturated fat intake. Because when you actually look at studies on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, where they uh, compare the amount of saturated fat in a diet and either reducing and then reducing it um, and replacing that saturated fat with either unsaturated fat, particularly monounsaturated fats probably have the best evidence here, or even simple sugars, which we would generally not be a fan of. But the diets that are higher in saturated fat tend to result in a greater amount of fat in the hepatocytes, in the liver cells. And it's like, okay, so if there's one thing I can hang my hat on, it's I would want to reduce the saturated fat intake of a diet um, significantly. Um, and so what would that dietary pattern look like? It might look like the Mediterranean diet, but there are other obviously dietary patterns. You could be a vegan, you could be a vegetarian, you could be, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, in general, that would be the only thing that I would really like want to promote and then in addition, all the rest of our dietary, you know, health promoting dietary pattern sort of guidelines. So high, relatively high amounts of lean protein, relatively high amounts of fruit, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, uh, low amounts of processed food consumption, low amounts of foods that have added sodium, added sugar, added saturated fat uh, consumption, and then ultimately trying to um, consume uh, uh, the correct amount of energy so that you uh, are able to sustain a healthy body composition, healthy body weight, and healthy levels of physical activity. I mean, that's that's it. And there are many ways that, that you can do that. So. Yeah, yeah, both from the diet dietary front, but also, you know, part of the way I think about this is, is since it's a long-term condition and it tends to be progressive and a fraction of people are going to have that inflammatory stage and then a fraction of those people are going to get the permanent scarring, this is similar to other conditions we talk about with like blood lipids, for example, blood cholesterol. The, the higher they are and the longer they stay high over the lifespan, the higher the uh, risk that somebody is going to be at. Same with blood pressure. The higher the blood pressure is and the longer it stays high, the higher of a risk that person is going to be at for complications. With fatty liver disease, the more fat somebody has in their liver, or definitely if they get to the inflammatory stage, the steatohepatitis stage, um, the, the, the longer they have that and the worse it is, the more likely they're going to keep progressing to those worst stages and have complications. And so I say all of that to say, I would rather get control of that in the short term as fast as possible 
basically. <laughs> Meaning that when I'm having conversations with patients about this, it is super common for folks to be reluctant to do things that are more aggressive. So they, you know, for example, we've talked about weight loss medications on the podcast before um, that nowadays are extremely effective and quite safe. Um, you know, we some of these can help help people lose 20, 25%. Um, there are some that are in the pipeline that I actually read about earlier today that are now approaching 30% of body weight loss, which is like metabolic surgery level, a gastric bypass level, level weight loss. Um, and so it's like, if, if, because sometimes clinicians will have conversations with patients and they'll say, try this lifestyle stuff, try, try, you know, doing this diet, try to move around a little bit more if they're even able to give that degree of counseling. And, you know, I'll check up on you in six months or something like that. Uh, and then maybe they'll have made a bit of progress and they'll give a few more tips and they say, okay, well, let's, you know, keep it going. Let's go for more. And they're like, you know, 2% down or something like that in body weight. And before you know, it, it's like been a whole year and they have an inflamed liver <laughs> with the you know risk that comes with all of that both to the liver itself to their cardiovascular system which again is the most common cause of death in these patients and so you know if obviously patients are the ones in charge here they're in the driver's seat they're making the decisions uh, just with you know guidance and advice and recommendations from from me or for, from their clinician but if it were me i would want to get that uh maximally controlled uh fast and so if that meant um you know uh, rapid weight loss, whether through dietary means and or through the use of medications to facilitate that, I'm okay with that. I wonder if insurance companies would follow that reasoning, you know, because it's been difficult to get insurance insurance yep. uh, payers to, to, to pony up for some of these weight loss medications. You're like, well, yeah. they don't have diabetes, so yeah. no, yeah. You, you can't use this. But what if, I wonder if they would do it for uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. <laughs> yeah, we just have to convince them that obesity is not just a cosmetic problem. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. So, no, I agree though. And, and again, it's just because... The, multiple studies have reported normalization of the plasma, I mean, a transferase levels, so that's just a liver function test, and a reduction of the amount of fat stuck in the liver cells, so that hepatic steatosis. Uh, and it's been confirmed by imaging. It's been confirmed by additional biopsies. It, 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 this reduction is proportional to the amount of weight loss. And so if you can achieve this greater than 10% of body weight loss and sustain it, um, just lifestyle alone, great. But, but I am like you, Austin, I'd want to be more aggressive. If this is my liver, boy, I'm going to do lifestyle plus meds. And like, let's see, let's see where we can get here. And because I don't want to expose myself to any additional undue risk. Um, yeah. Okay. So we talked about weight loss, talked about dietary pattern changes. Let's talk about exercise now. Exercise is interesting in that it seems to have multiple mechanisms by which it can improve uh, outcomes of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So the first up, First one is just going to be energy balance and metabolism. So just increasing physical activity, uh, especially if it's through resistance training, um, tends to uh, reduce insulin resistance systemat uh, systemically. So the muscles get more sensitive to insulin. The liver gets more sensitive to, sensitive to insulin. Your fat tissue gets more sensitive to insulin. This is all good things for liberating energy from those stores and using energy. Um, in addition, because you're using energy to exercise, there's less additional energy available for inflammation. Again, this seems to be one of those mechanisms by which exercise actually reduces net inflammation, even though exercise itself is kind of an inflammatory process. You're breaking down muscle tissue, you require repair, remodeling, all the other stuff, and that's done via inflammatory signaling, but net body-wide inflammation seems to go down. One of the ways that it does that is by uh, releasing myokines. So that's these just uh, hormone uh, messengers released from the muscles, myo meaning muscles and kines, just referring to those uh, types of hormones. Uh, exercise increases 
the uh, production of certain myokines that are directly involved in lipid metabolism in the liver. One is irisin. This seems to, once that, when that goes up, hepatocyte triglyceride accumulation goes down. Um, other myokines like CTRP5, aka myonectin, or C1Q, TNF-related protein 5, you're really preaching to the mechanism nerds right that's now. Right, that's right. That's right. I don't even care about that. <laughs> <laughs> it enhances glucose uptake and stimulates fatty acid oxidation. So basically it turns your liver into this furnace to burn all this extra energy so that you can correct for that overnutrition of the liver. Exercise can help with that as well. It also has this additional mechanism called autophagy. Uh, and specifically mitophagy, mitophagy and lipophagy. So these are catabolic processes that eliminate surplus or abnormal organelles, excess lipids or fats, and protein aggregates. Um, and if it happens in the mitochondria, we call it mitophagy. And if it happens uh, to re re uh, remove fatty acid uh, storage in a cell, we call it lipophagy. Uh, and so exercise tends to ramp up both of these processes, which is good if you have too much fat accumulated in the liver. And interestingly, um, one of the histological findings in fatty liver disease is that these mitochondria are just fat overloaded. They're just tons of lipid in there. They can't get out, can't get used. And so it's like, how do we ramp this up? And exercise seems to signal that directly. And then uh, the next way in which exercise can help, uh, it tends to improve circulation. So blood flow. Uh, and this non-alcoholic fatty liver disease seems to be one of those conditions that markedly increases anabolic resistance. And so if you can improve circulation, increase blood flow to not only the gut to absorb dietary protein, which is a anabolic stimulus from the diet, uh, but also delivery of that those amino acids to the muscles and increase blood supply to the muscles overall, you can reduce anabolic resistance. And sarcopenia is super common uh, in individuals with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And sarcopenic obesity uh, seems to be the flavor of sarcopenia they get. That means they have low amounts of muscle mass, low amount of muscle function, poor, poor muscle function, but also central adiposity. And you're like, should they lose weight? Should they gain weight? Like what do? Uh, they need to lift. They need to lift. But in individuals with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, there's a 30 to 70% prevalence of concomitant sarcopenic obesity. I bet it's similar even with, you know, alcohol-related fatty liver disease or, you know, any, basically any form of chronic liver disease. Um, you know, I see lots and lots and lots of chronic liver disease, and the majority of them <laughs> have sarcopenia. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, super common. Yeah, the liver is like this is anabolic intermediate organ. And like if your liver is not working, you are not getting all the muscle gains uh, that you could potentially get. And individuals with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease ha might also have certain lifestyle behaviors and dietary preferences that are getting low in protein. Maybe they don't lift, whatever. Um, but yeah, you know, it's just like we always heard growing, growing up, coming up through medicine. You know, if the liver doesn't work, the muscles can't twerk. I mean, it's tail as old as time. So uh, interestingly, like, you can't find data here that actually shows that if you take individuals with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and they start lifting weights, that they gain more strength, uh, for example, or more lean body mass than those who don't, because none of the studies actually assess those things. They assess things like VO2 max and a 2K walking performance, which both improved, like, duh, of course, exercise did that. But I don't care what somebody's VO2 max did, because that's not really what's affecting their quality of life most importantly, it's lack of muscle power, muscle strength, uh, and that's secondary to lack of muscle mass. So let's, you know, measure the right things, guys. Let's, let's do the right things. <laughs> so we'll see if some data comes on there. We, the data, again, just isn't there yet, but I think you and I would both agree that getting people to lift and meet 
or exceed the physical activity guidelines is likely to improve their not only muscle uh, quantity, but also their muscle quality as far as the function of their muscles go. Um, and then uh, lastly, exercise again can help with weight management, particularly with respect to weight regain. So let's say you have somebody who modifies their dietary pattern, plus or minus weight loss medications, plus or minus uh, metabolic surgery, bariatric uh, surgery. Exercise is a very potent mediator to prevent weight regain. It not only uh, increases people's sensitivity to satiety signals, so feelings of fullness, um, but also tends to uh, attenuate or reduce the uh, amount of meta uh, metabolism decrease that we see after weight loss. Um, so kind of preventing that weight regain, which would be important to for long-term management of risk from non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So yeah, overall, again, there's study after study after study showing that physical activity in addition to dietary pattern changes show additional benefits as far as like intrahepatocyte triglyceride or fat levels. Um, so we don't need to hash out all that. Rather, we would just say, look, yeah, in addition to changing the dietary pattern to not only reduce saturated fat, but also reduce energy intake so that folks can lose that sort of five, at least 5%, but ideally more than 10% of body weight, they should also be active and they should meet or exceed the physical activity guidelines. Um, the last thing I'll say about physical activity is that the benefit, the amount of uh, like intrahepatocyte lipid lowering, intrahepatocyte triglyceride level lowering is proportional to the volume of exercise and anthropometric improvements. So how much did their BMI go down? How much did their waist circumference go down? Uh, how much did their uh, one study was uh, uh, biceps cross-sectional area increase? <laughs> And effectively, this is very similar in my eyes uh, to what we see with the studies on blood pressure lowering potential and blood glucose uh, control potential that the people who respond best to the program seem to have better health promoting effects from the exercise too. So again, I would select a program that demonstrates improvements over the long term in both strength and both strength stamina uh, and cardiorespiratory fitness measures. And that would kind of set somebody up for success from an exercise perspective. Um, anything else you want to add to that, Austin? No, I don't think so. He likes it. it. Okay, cool. Well, let's talk about meds, dude. What? There's got to be something specific out there, right? So people are like, yeah, yeah, we get it. Uh, eat, eat well, exercise, duh, duh, duh. But like, what, what can I take specifically medication-wise to help with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Yeah, I wish there was a lot of really potent, you know, high-quality stuff that we could recommend for people, unfortunately. Uh, not really the case. Um, there are basically a, a small handful of things that have some research that they that can that, that suggest they can help in certain situations. Um, one is actually vitamin E supplementation, which is not something I have ever recommended anybody do outside of this context, outside of overt vitamin E deficiency, or people who have, you know, absorption problems like patients with cystic fibrosis or something who can't absorb it. But otherwise, I don't really tend to, this doesn't tend to come up too often. There is some evidence for vitamin E supplementation in certain situations, um, which I think the nuances of that are honestly complicated enough that uh, it should be discussed with a doctor. <laughs> um, there are certain subpopulations in whom it may help. Um, particularly those who have the steatohepatitis, the inflammatory type, and then whether or not they have diabetes plays into this and, and things like that. So I don't think it's actually worth me talking through precisely which populations may or may not benefit because somebody with, um, you know, significant uh, liver inflammation due to fatty liver disease should be working with a physician on this. And so uh, it would be a conversation with them. I would not go out, um, anybody who's listening, I would not go out and just start supplementing vitamin E. 
based on this podcast, you shouldn't really listen to us for that kind of thing anyway. <laughs> but, um, but, but if you're a patient who's in this situation, talking with your doctor about that uh, to see whether you are um, the type of patient who is reflected in the studies on this that showed there may be some benefit for the degree of inflammation, um, fibrosis, et cetera. What about uh, other medications? Anything, anything of note? Yeah, there's one other one that's sometimes used in this setting. Uh, it's called pioglitazone, which is a which is a, a mouthful. Uh, the the old brand name is Actos. It's a on the older side as far as medicines go that have been traditionally used to treat diabetes. But there has been some evidence that it can help in patients with diabetes and uh, proven non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, the inflammatory stage. Uh, but again, this is not something that. A, you wouldn't be able to get it anyway just because you wanted to, but it's something that you should discuss with a with a doctor um, to come to the determination if you're likely to benefit from it, if the benefits outweigh the risks, the the, the downsides, because this can actually increase some weight gain. Um, there can be other, you know, uh, adverse effects of this medicine in, in some patients that may not be desirable or, um, for you. And so, honestly, as far as medications go, um, I don't tend to think about meds specifically for the fatty liver disease. Rather, uh, I would rather treat the uh, other kind of drivers of this. And so, as we mentioned earlier, the most, the best thing that we can get people doing is uh, weight loss, particularly fat loss, intra, you know, uh, loss of the fat that's in and around the, the abdomen and, and in the liver itself. And we can do that through dietary means, through exercise and with medications. And so those would be the meds that I, that they, I, I, honestly, these most potent ones, they've, they're, they're increasingly well-studied for some of their, you know, the reasons that they're used, be it diabetes, weight loss, things like that. I don't know of studies on some of those medicines specifically for fatty liver disease related outcomes, like as a direct study of that. But um, I cannot think of any possible way that they don't show <laughs> benefit for this when they can facilitate, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25% weight loss. Um, so that is, uh, that is my strong expectation is that these are going to be uh, quite helpful in the long-term management of this condition for, for, uh, for a swath of patients. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like heavy on the lifestyle plus or minus some medicine or surgical support potentially for a lifestyle from the nutrition arm. Um, and then yes, there may be some additional benefit, um, depending on what your doctor says in your particular case about vitamin E, pioglitazone, uh, potentially some other stuff, but yeah, I don't want people to go out there and just start saying, all right, well, what are the supplements I need? Or what are the medic medications that I need? It's like, yeah, this probably needs to be addressed holistically with your, with your weird uh, coming from us, provider. isn't it? <laughs> Dude, we should I be know. shilling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, shilling for a big lifestyle. Look at us. Cool. Uh, all right. Well, this has been episode two hundred four. Austin, anything else you think people need to take home about this? Uh, hopefully, you can uh, appreciate the gravity of this issue. And uh, if you are a person who is at risk, for example, if you have obesity, if you have diabetes, things like that, it's something that if your doctors never talk to you about this, maybe bring it up with them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. Especially again, because uh, if you are at high risk or elevated risk, you definitely have likely those uh, blood tests that you could just quickly calculate a score and kind of better characterize where you stand. So uh, yep, that's been episode 204 on fatty liver disease here at the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Again, this has been presented by Pioneer Belts for all your belt needs for wrist straps, wrist wraps, or any other sort of custom lifting gear please check out Pioneer over at generalleathercraft.com. Let them know that Barbell Medicine sent you. They're really great for helping us out here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Uh, before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Uh, for everyone here at Barbell Medicine, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week and every week right here 
on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Mm-hmm.